There's a lot to say when buying a new home or car, but only one thing to say that can help you protect them. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. And just like that, a State Farm agent will be there to help you choose the coverage you need, no matter where you are in life. When you need coverage options, your State Farm agent is there to help, on the phone or in person. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Hey, Dave. Yeah, Randy. Since we founded Bombas, we've always said our socks, underwear, and T-shirts are super soft. Any new ideas? Maybe sublimely soft. Or disgustingly cozy. Wait, what? I got it. Bombas. Absurdly comfortable essentials for yourself and for those facing homelessness. Because one purchased equals one donated. Wow, did we just write an ad? Yes. Bombus. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombus.com slash wondery and use code Wondery for 20% off your first purchase. Welcome to the Nerds Podcast number 672. Let's go to the community cork board. That's events at nerdist.com if you want to be added to this. Events at nerdist.com. One of our listeners hosts a podcast called The Historian's Movie Review. He looks at history through the lens of film and reviews film in the context of the historical events and topics in the film. Find it at historiansmoviereview.libsyn.com. Also, if you're into 3D printing, laser cutting, and more, check out HexLab Makerspace in L.A. It's a community workspace in Los Angeles for people to come and learn and build and have fun with other like-minded makers. To learn more about it, go to uh, hexlabmakerspace.com. And we are doing a beta test... On Monday, the 11th of May, 9 p.m. at Meltdown uh, at NerdMelt, our space over there. So go to NerdMeltLA.com for tickets. Even if it says sold out, there's always a standby line and everyone gets in. So check it out. Uh, it's a week from today, uh, Monday, the 11th, uh, over at NerdMelt. This episode is Mr. Kevin Pollack. Kevin, who has been a dear friend of mine for quite a while now, a fine podcaster, a wonderful comedian and actor, he made this movie called Misery Loves Comedy, which is all about sort of the the psychological state of mind of what it means to be a comedian. He's interviewed so many wonderful people in this uh, in this documentary, and uh, and I'm in it too. So wonderful people, and then me, but then but a lot of people that are very relevant to your interests that you will love. So check it out. It's available now on all the digital platforms. Misery Loves Comedy, directed by Kevin Pollack, who is a lovely, lovely man. Here's episode number 672 with Kevin Pollack. Can I start that time? Now entering Nerdist.com. They send you the. Mm-hmm. Oh, he's shaking his head. Yeah, I did. Well, I'll tell you what. They didn't. Maybe they sent it to me. I just bought it on iTunes. You motherfucker! Because you're a giver. I like to support. Yeah, I hear you. Me too. So I bought it on iTunes and I watched it last night. And oh it, wow, it was really fun. So, I mean, like you know what? Save it for the show. <laughs> we're already recording. Oh, we are. No. Oh, okay. Um, first of all, yes, yeah, sir. It's. Shocking to me that we've been doing this podcast for five years. Like, that freaks me out because it still feels like, oh, it's just a thing that we. And I just remembered that you, you're on one of the episodes that we had to do over. Yeah. Because. Yeah. Oh, the gang's half here. Yeah. yeah. It's a reunion tour from that, the first time at my I was, table. I was just remembering we, that Kevin is one of the couple of episodes that we had to do over. 
I think there were two episodes we had to do over. Still you still have and, that on the... Uh, you and Doug Benson, computer. and uh, because the equipment got stolen, was that what it was? Yeah, I stole it on my Honda the, Civic. The equipment got stolen in the Honda Civic and sold. <laughs> All we had was an iPhone at yeah, the time. Yeah, used two iPhones. And it, and it, it didn't work it out. It didn't work out well. Uh, the uh, iPhones from five years ago didn't wow. record yeah. sound as well. It's a really, so, it's a really came fat to my, jeans. came to your house. Dining room there. table. Yeah, yeah, so we had to, had to call you and say... I'm really <laughs> sorry to say this, but, but you, you we, know all that time you spent. You did a to... great job of pretending it was all fresh. Uh, <laughs> it was well, all the different stories. <laughs> That's crazy. Yeah. You know, I, oh gosh, I don't know that we've had a do-over in the six years of my little uh, wildly less popular podcast. KPCS. <laughs> <laughs> we were one of the first and one of the long-standing least popular. Um, <laughs> well, I you, think it's because I and insist on... one of the on fastest sh- to go from pay to not pay. Yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> from not pay to pay to not pay. Um, <laughs> hey, everyone, you like the show? What yeah. would you like to pay for it? Everyone no, would I don't do like it anymore. Fuck you, Kevin Pollack. You're worth How it. dare you? It was one of, we were up to a million downloads... Uh, month maybe or week I can't even remember because it's been so long we really were swinging and um, and uh, yeah so so someone said well what if you charge like I don't know 99 cents for 25 of them mm-hmm. not even for one yeah. mm-hmm. you know just so we the paywall and iTunes and I had to sit down with the iTunes uh, fellas who I'm sure you know and um and they were. They said, "Well, you know, we've never charged for a podcast." And I said, "Right, um, you charge for a for a music. You destroyed the record label business <laughs> for for a four minute song, ninety nine cents for four minutes." <laughs> right, right, exactly. So you see how it all works out on you're, paper. You're talking twenty five hours of content. <laughs> well, technically, almost forty or fifty because. You know, my tends to go a little long-winded, so we average closer to two hours per. So it was really ridiculous. And across the board, the internet said, fuck you. It was fantastic. And within 10 days, I went learn. back on my show and said, you're right. I'm an asshole. It's free again. Reminds me of the uh, Jackie Gleason story that he did that show. He did some show in the 60s, like a game show. They did one episode, and... People uniformly did not like the show, so he came on next week and and he said, uh, uh, "Really sorry about that." Uh, so now this is just going to be a chat show, and then and then for the rest of the show, wow. they didn't cancel him because he had a commitment. So he wow. just had his friends on and they just chatted. It became wow. a chat show. Jesus, that's so you, you know you're listening. You're listening to your audience, but well, you... kind of shitty on their part not to be like, "Hey, here's a dollar for 50 hours well, of entertainment." Be- because it was six years ago, I think also the podcast world was so new that people, yeah, no one knew what to do. If you think they have choices now, yeah. they certainly had enough choices then to say, "Well, all these other ones are free. Why yeah. would I?" It's so, very hard to go from free to. I remember talking to you about it, and you said, "Yeah, it's kind of promotional for everything else I'm doing." And I said, "Yeah, you're right, but buddy, I got a, a machete in each hand, and I'm going through the." And if you would just stand by, and I totally understood why you and and Marin and a few others said, "Good luck, buddy." You know, it was it was, and and it turns out there's no correct way to do any of this shit. Just the way the you know the ones we choose. Yeah, for me it was I I was I, I never really thought about trying to make money from the podcast initially. It was just I wanted to reach the widest audience yeah. possible, and I knew that clearly a paywall would would cut our audience down significantly, and so I just didn't. It was more important for me to get people if to like the show, so they would come out and see us live and all, and all that stuff. But but I still don't know if I still don't know if anger and hate is really the way. Like <laughs> when you're a guy who's who's making a lot of content, like 
hey, a dollar for you know twenty five yeah. shows like yeah. that to me, I completely understand. Why you would go? Well, that's not crazy. It's, it's totally. Also, it was the only and remains the only form of entertainment that is free on this level. <laughs> yeah. You know, I mean, true, it's crazy. <laughs> no, I mean, so I, that's why I said to the iTunes guys when I met with them because they said, you know, just we don't. We, they finally got to the point where they hemmed and hawed, and finally they said, we don't have the code for you to charge for your yeah. podcast. It's not even written, so we wouldn't even. So that took, I don't know, eight, ten months, uh, weeks. For them to get someone to actually write the code so that a podcast could charge, because within their system, the algorithm wasn't there, blah, blah, blah. So uh, they said, well, in, in trying to talk me out of it, they said, so, you know, why, why? And I said, well, you charge for music, you charge for TV, you charge for movies, you charge for books, you charge for every single form of entertainment except for this. Mm-hmm. So I kind of feel like I'm getting a big, cold, wet dead fish in my face of a slap and as a thank you for all this effort yeah. from from you uh so anyways it was much more important for the audience to tell me fuck you than for, I, than for itunes to tell me fuck you so i beat the system i yep. got them to write the code that was awesome yeah <clears throat> and every now and then uh, you know i'll be reminded <laughs> <laughs> but uh, you saw the film. Let's go back to that. Yeah, no. <laughs> People will pay for that. They already have. We, we, we're doing extremely well on iTunes. Yeah, we, we shot to number one on documentaries uh, within two days, and, and, and now have only been bested by documentaries that have been reduced to 99 cents. There's a couple of those, and they tend to do a little bit better, speaking of the 99-cent model. You know, I hadn't uh, – <laughs> my girlfriend's mom saw it. Uh, a few days ago and she said oh my mom saw the, the comedy documentary you're in and she, she said you're really great in it I was like oh that's nice so then we watched it last <laughs> night and then I'm mortified when I realized that one of the things you used to me was me talking about the time I <laughs> masturbated in a church once uh, uh-huh. <laughs> so, yeah that was fun for your future ex-mother-in-law <laughs> yeah so I, I really afterwards I was like I'm sorry you have to and she was like I don't care I mean she was super cool you know yeah. like, I just love that Patty Hearst knows you're a creeper. Yeah. yeah. Well, you know, now everyone knows. Yeah. Everyone knows. And, and, and by the way, you're welcome because <laughs> I feel like I did you and your relationship a solid by forcing this out of you and, and into the conversation. Now it's out. Yeah. But it was, it's to- it was you don't totally. You to worry about that one. <laughs> <laughs> that secret is no more. The funny part about it is that I feel like it sort of did. <laughs> I mean, I guess it sort of came out of the idea of comics tackling uncomfortable things. Yeah, when comics. Matt Walsh later says, I made a girl cry in college. Yeah. I feel bad. It's a real powerful moment. And the truth is, I, I, the original thesis, you have to be miserable to be funny, became the third act. When I had 70 hours of material to edit a 94-minute from, and with no script and no narrative, I kind of had to create one. And in the process, the first two acts were getting to know these people and getting to give a shit about what they do and why they chose this life and what they've gone through. And then the third act is how miserable do you have to be? But we've sort of been seeing all along whether they're miserable or not. I mean, it could be. It could have been a series. Like it could have been like a like a five or six part HBO doc about comedy that's in the works. Oh, good. Not necessarily with them, but uh, yeah. No, but Tri- someone. Tribeca Films bought the movie at Sundance where we premiered, and and talks of the series version again with seventy hours of material. It's it's a little ridiculous. I mean, I don't you the, it. That must have been an embarrassment of riches. Of I don't, oh, I love this, but I can't. You can't oh. fathom. Yeah, because it's also puzzle pieces where there's no photograph of the puzzle made on the side of the box. No, they're just puzzle pieces, and there's no 
You talk about no correct path, just the one we choose. Mm-hmm. Dear Lord, yeah. I cut 17 versions before I showed it to anyone, and then 27 more. I cut for 10 months, and I would have continued to this day if the Sundance uh, submission deadline hadn't stopped me. Oh, my God. Because there's no, there's, there's just, and also, I, you know, we've sat next to editors in our careers as they push the buttons. I had never sat in the vacuum alone and pushed the buttons. That I highly recommend. <laughs> it is extraordinary. It's the final rewrite that you've never thought. Po- in my case, I've always heard directors say that editing was the final rewrite. In my case, I think I, it was the original script. Because, again, there wasn't one yeah. when I went in. So I had to write the script in editing and then rewrite it. During, it was kind of like a reality show. You get a bunch of no, footage no, and then no, you no. sort of... That's the original reality, reality shows. shows. Now the reality... <laughs> That's not how they work anymore, Now they're Chris. scripted ahead of time. Oh, yeah, of course. Yes, yes, <laughs> yes, By yes, yes. consultants. By consultants. <laughs> My non-union, non-union not in the guild. What does Jamie say when she's quoting the symptoms? My non-union uh, equivalent? <laughs> My non-union Mexican equivalent. I think it's the Simpsons quote. Yes. But uh, it's... El Spare... Spielbergo? Uh, El Spielbergo. Yeah, Spielbergo. Spielbergo. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> right. um, but that's... Uh, that is a tremendous... I mean, I, I feel like I would buckle from the weight of having to make those kinds of decisions. Because you have... I mean, it's, it's pretty much everyone that you would want to see yeah, talking was... about comedy. Who, who was there? Was there well, that was that... the thing also, was wanting to include everyone. Because it was pretty much going to be whoever said yes is who I put in the schedule. We had to have an actual shooting schedule of four straight weeks, five-day consecutive four weeks. And whoever was available in those four weeks, one week in New York, three weeks in L.A., is who we got, right? So, you know, with the podcast, you're constantly booking this thing. So it's one of the reasons that they wanted me to direct the movie, because I could reach talent. But we had 25 people say yes, and we're slotted in when we started to shoot, which I thought would be amazing. 25 hours, 90 minutes out of 25 yeah. hours, I'm done. Sure. This is great. And as we were shooting, people kept saying yes. And I was a girl who couldn't say no, so we just kept slotting them into the schedule of those four weeks. And by the end, we had almost 60. And then the thought was, well, I want them all to be in the movie. Well, 16 and 90 minutes is a minute and a half each. That's no good. Right. <laughs> so then it was a matter of, I want to get a real sense of these people, and not, mm. and not, but I want to include them all. And then... Once I had to structure it and really write a narrative is when the chapters and title cards came about. And once the chapters and title cards came about, you know, losing your amateur status, your influence, you know, the Brit who stole from Spinal Tap and other influences, that's pretty ridiculous that Steve Coogan admits he stole from Michael McKean and Spinal yeah. Tap. That made me laugh till the end of time. I love the story of, uh, I, I love the... Um uh, Steve Merchant Steve meeting Steve Merchant Coogan. meeting Steve Coogan. <laughs> and just seeing... But it's so funny to see those consistencies in the comic brain yeah. where you take a shot thinking like, oh, we're all in the same... And not everyone... Who doesn't land. Doesn't. <laughs> it's like, you're being a dick. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, so uh, once those uh, chapters and title cards took place, now I had a story... So like you're doing a script, the old adage is if it doesn't feed the story, you can't keep it in editing. It has to keep moving the story forward. And that's, I think, why certain people and aspects got trimmed down, you know, more than I would have wanted ultimately. So the TV, if there is a Internet or TV or cable version of this, then it would be focusing on one or two people. Right. Or a theme, a chapter. Yeah. And maybe 
three or four people. So I, I did get a little. And are you saying using the same footage you already shot, or not that's in the movie? Yeah, it's in the movie. Just the other sixty. Well, that's smart. Seven hours. Yeah, you would have. I mean, yeah, you don't. You don't need to shoot more <laughs> unless there are a couple more. I mean, people. there are a lot of people that just weren't available who said yes, and the scheduling didn't work out. Dave Chappelle, the ultimate, could have been on the poster for this topic. Uh, Misery loves comedy. Uh, this is, boy, I try real hard not to believe in a god entity or a universe, even. So the very first day of shooting in New York, the very first day of shooting. Uh, there's a Starbucks across from the hotel I'm staying because that is New York. Um, and I go into the Starbucks before shooting the first day. The crew's already on location. I'm on my way. First day of directing. Unbelievable excitement in the air for me personally. I go into the Starbucks. There's four people in line. The guy in front of me, tall. I can only see the back of his head. Can't really make it out. And then I hear his voice. Holy crap. Dave? And Dave Chappelle turns around. Now... You talk about all the gin joints in all the world. Sure. There are three million Starbucks in New York. Yeah. And half as yeah, many Yeah, but how hotels. many in Midtown? <laughs> Two million. <laughs> they should just make a Starbucks hotel. By the way, technically I was in Soho and he was staying at the same hotel. And that's the only reason uh, he was in that Starbucks, right? Yeah. Um, so, but still, there were, he was in that Starbucks for 90 seconds. Yeah. So he turns around. Now I realize <clears throat> I, in fact, have 90 seconds to get my case across to him that I'm day one shooting this movie. And is there any way, <clears throat> you know what I mean? Yeah. Mm. How am I going to get Dave Chappelle? The universe has placed him in front of me. Mm-hmm. I've got 90 seconds to not tackle him to the ground. Right. But, but respectfully force him to do Or, you know, <laughs> he says yes immediately. Gives me his digits. Uh, he's off to Boston to do a thing. He'll be right back. I'm going to be there all week. We're going to get him. It's great. And then scheduling just didn't work out, you know? Heartbreak beyond belief. Uh, and we text me afterwards. I'm, I might be in L.A. in the next three weeks. I know you're shooting. and So best efforts were made, you know? So in terms of shooting ad- additional footage for anything more, yeah, there's a lot of people that said yes after the fact. Jack Black, uh, and, and Adam Sandler. I mean, a lot of heavyweights, too, which is just frustrating, you know? Yeah, but you heavyweights. Can't. You got Louis Anderson. <laughs> I always remember. The Let last. me move the microphone stand so you can see me. Yeah, first his the first last. joke in the ninth annual Young Comedian Special. Let me move this mic stand yeah. so you can see me. It, it, by the way, I had seen him do that joke on stage ten years before. But I always go to the last. What I like to think is the last three episodes, which he probably shot in one day of Family Feud and hosting, and he had lost. They'd broken his spirit. They'd broken his <laughs> his reason to live, and. He just was looking at this family whose names and faces he would never remember, let alone be able to say in the moment. Turn back to the board. Show me toothpaste! You know, there was just, there was nothing left. (laughs) When anyone says his name, that's right where my brain goes. (laughs) That I happened to see one of the last shows he did. Uh, He was just dead. I just, all I hear him say is feud, because he used to just say it with such feud. What up next time? Yeah. So, and therein lies the misery of you know, one of the things I wanted to show in the movie. And people like Judd Apatow talking about. I used to think I would find happiness in editing, or, or uh, when my movies succeed, right? And then he realized that he found almost no happiness in their success. For, he said, and he points out some of my films have not done well, but for the ones who have done well, I found almost no happiness in that. And now I realize I'm finding happiness in the doing of it. The, you know, the filming and the editing. And I realized that's not healthy. 
So now I'm trying to figure out how to find happiness in doing nothing, and I'm failing miserably. <laughs> I mean, that whole section in the film was like, well, there's the movie. Everyone else can go home. That, yeah. I mean, that was literally it. Uh, but then everyone just contributed in their own way, obviously, and, and that became the answer to the question. You have to be miserable to be funny. Turns out misery is a, a life experience. It's a guarantee with death and taxes. You're going to be miserable. There's no way around it. And then the artist has to articulate. You hear that, Switzerland? <laughs> you fucks. Uh, <laughs> you have to articulate that misery, right? That's our job. And, you, and if you're a songwriter or a painter or performer or whatever, you have to articulate the misery in either a painfully personal way that maybe the audience is frightened at first mm-hmm. and then begins to laugh. Or it's such a universal, as Steve Coogan says in the film, you've just shined a light on what it's like to be human. Yeah. Right? Even Seinfeld 35 years ago when he did, first did the sock lost in the dryer, that's minutia, but it's, it's life's universal misery. I mean, yeah. that's why that joke exists. So uh, the film then becomes a journey of bigger to me was children suffer from, hey, look at me, as I think I'm heard saying in the film, because they're children. They need attention. But I think adults suffer from, hey, look at me. Otherwise, Facebook isn't a multi-billion dollar business. Right. That's crystal clear. Mm. But who chooses, hey, look at me, as a career, as a profession, to devote your life to the guarantee of rejection through through all of it, yeah, well broken. Like everyone, everyone who does comedy is broken in some way because yeah, it's just are, a, most are Jews. It's just a it's just a weird. <laughs> Turns out we don't even have the market cornered on that. <laughs> it, it's just a weird thing to do. It's just a weird thing to do. I mean, I love it, and you know, when people say I'm trying stand up for the first time, this this guy sure. um, wrote a post on Reddit on our Nerdist subreddit that. Um, uh, he's trying comedy for the first time tonight in London. He was really nervous. And so I wrote, you know, I wrote out like, you know, you're going to shit your pants. The anticipation's worse. Once you get on stage, you'll be fine. It'll feel like it's taking forever. But when you're done, you won't be able to remember it. And it'll feel like it went like that. And, wow. You know, but just you'll know afterwards if this is something that's really in your gut. Because no matter how good or bad it goes, and you will bomb sometimes, uh, if you still say, I got to get back up there and do that again. I don't know if that's really a choice. I mean, you make the choice of whether or not you're going to follow that. Yeah. But I don't know if you choose the the sort of that molecular pull to get on stage in spite of how terrifying or how much rejection or how much how good or bad you do. You need to be up there or you don't. Yeah. It's that simple. Yeah. I mean, I don't uh America's number one fear above death is public speaking. Thankfully, because therefore, those of us that choose to do it look special. <laughs> and it's almost like there's a weird sort of flip in, in the brain of a comedian who most of them are, have a bit of social anxiety or are weird in social situations. But you could put them in front of 100,000 people and it wouldn't be a, you know. But yep. you put them like one-on-one in a room right. with like three or four or eight people. And it's like, ah, I don't know. It yeah. feels weird. Yeah. Oh, yeah. We do have all social anxiety. Um, I just remember that. Did, you should see the. Did you watch the trailer online, by the way? Tribeca cut a trailer. You're in it. That's why. Oh, 
nice. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Hey. It's a very fast-moving, poppy, cool, great trailer. Well, if I'm in it, I, they I cut. have yeah, to see you have it no now. Choice. I need to see myself. <laughs> and I cut. Next time I cut, Chris is on a continuous loop. Hey, have you seen this? <laughs> <laughs> Kevin, have you seen me in this trailer? Yeah, I know. It's my movie. Oh, hey, it's great. I didn't cut the trailer. They did a great job. Well, that's they good. They did a great job. I mean, it's. It, uh, are you doing any <laughs> – has this taken you out of any live, live performance because you've been so focused on this movie for so long? Or have you not been doing any? Yeah, I, I've um, – yes. Yes, it has. And now I've been asked to direct a comedy. I mean, that's probably the biggest uh, thing that's come from this whole effort other than the personal achievements, which is first time – well, just finishing the film. Again, getting through direct uh, editing. That education, again, I highly recommend but getting uh, accepted into Sundance, you know, there's 7,000 movies submitted. So being selected is the victory. Yeah. Right? And uh, you talk about the timing of stuff. Again, fucking universe. So I'm on this Chuck Lurie show, Mom, reoccurring uh, second half of the first season, first half of the second season. The second season, that follows Big Bang Theory. So now the world's watching it. It's got the best time slot lead in in, in television. So it becomes a top ten, sometimes top five show. And halfway through the second season of that joyride, Chuck Lorre decides my character has to be killed. <laughs> he, he wants a red wedding, and I'm it. Uh, yay! Celebration. What'd you do? Did you try to create a paywall for your partner? <laughs> <laughs> Technically. I said he had to pay me more. No, no. He, he, uh, we've ever seen the show, but the two women, Alice and Janney and Anna Ferris, they must face misery Constantly, that's what the show was built for, for these two women to suffer forevermore. And then they wrote this love story with me and Alice and Janney, who gave birth to Anna Ferris years before. And they, it's a rekindling of the second season, and they basically pended themselves into a corner. So anyways, that phone call comes, we have to kill you, uh, the beginning of October. The film is going to debut that January at, at Sundance, my film. They shoot me dying two months before... Misery Loves Comedy debuts at Sundance, right? They could have aired it any week, any time, whenever that episode was going to air. The night before the world premiere of my directorial debut, my character is killed on Mom in prime time, that episode being a top five for the week. The next morning, when the internet is slightly pissed that my character was killed, for those who like the show, it's announced that Tribeca Films bought my directorial debut, <laughs> which will have its world premiere that afternoon. I could have been sitting home eating bonbons in an in a old you know, <laughs> bathrobe. It could have been the worst. Instead, so a window closes and a garage door opens. It was that transition and timing. Um, again, I just should not believe in this universe that keeps looking after me. <laughs> <laughs> so in the, uh, you, you, you dedicated the film to Robin. Yeah. But he's not in it. Did you shoot him ever, or did, was there stuff that you shot, and you're like, I feel weird putting it in because of what happened? Um, so getting back to the uh, who was left out question and the scheduling of everyone, it really was impossible to schedule everyone, so whoever was available, mm -hmm. as I said. So while we were filming, oh, before we were filming, I called Robin. Uh, he had been a mentor of mine when I started 20 years old in San Francisco. He had just become a made man for Mork and Mindy, covered Time Magazine. And right when I started, all that was happening for him. And he'd spent all of his time, as you may know, back in San Francisco. It's where he raised his family. So he mentored me and, and other people. He, he was just a great champion and pal all these years. Um, and so when I was going to do the movie, the people who knew him knew he suffered from depression his whole life. So, yeah, there again, he's, he's – and also his 
uh, appearance on, on Marin is, I think, the only time where there's public record of him kind of talking about it. So when I called him, he was in the middle of shooting uh, the TV show, uh, the half-hour single camera. So mm-hmm. that's 12 or 14-hour days, five days a week, the same exact time I was shooting the documentary. So there was physically no time unless I yeah. was willing to take the entire crew and go and sit in his trailer and wait till he had a free hour. And this just wasn't going to happen. Right. And with, for the locations of all the interviews, I know we, you know, we came to your office. You can't really tell based on the visual, I don't think. That was the thing was where are you going to shoot all these people? So I got on the phone with Robin. And I could tell in the conversation, two pals talking when he was explaining why the scheduling was was horrible, that he also was starting to treat it like an interview for the documentary. The conversation slowly became a therapy session and a and a and a very focused conversation on the subject at hand. And then we ended up having a second, con- and both of these lasted an hour, the starting with I. I really want to be there. I'm sorry I can't. And then 49 minutes of what the subject matter actually means to him. Mm -hmm. And there was never even a thought that went through my head of recording it. I was just talking to someone who I knew was close to the subject, someone who had been a mentor of mine and a friend, and not to mention world-renowned talent who would rise to the top of the names on the poster. But here are the two of these long, long, long conversations that meant the world to me. And then when he passed, I was in editing. And the producers called and said, because uh, everyone, you know, was kind of freaking out. It was within the comedy community. It was more than a bombshell. So my producers first called and said, I'm sorry for your loss because they knew we were friends. Do you want to go back and uh, film a few more people that were in the movie already and just ask them how they're feeling right now and what Robin meant to them? And I said, you're a producer. I won't damn you to hell for asking, but that's the most advantageous, self-serving idea you've ever had. (laughs) And I'm going to hang up now. Um, So, no, that's not going to happen. And then in the end, it just made sense to dedicate the film to him in in the closing credits out of, as I say, in, I think, love and respect, which is really, if he had passed and we hadn't talked and he was never going to be a part of the conversation, I think I... I still do that because of what he meant to me and the timing of his passing. Is it, is it sad? Is, is comedy sad? I mean, is pulling the curtain back? It's that sort of like, you know, that, that old joke about the, oh, you should go see the clown. This is, I am that clown. You know, the depressed guy. Tears behind the clown. Yes. Is, is, it, is, it, uh, is it sad? Is comedy sad? Well, I think when you get off stage, no matter what your disposition, if you're a if you're a prone-to-misery person, if you're a glass-half-full, you get off stage after taking the audience for a ride of your choosing, let's say for an hour, and you control the highs and lows. As Lewis Black says in the film, I, I finally, it took me years to realize that the comedy was in the silence. When I created a moment where I knew the audience was listening, the power of that, knowing you're about to deliver the comedy payload, as it were, around the corner. So you control that for an hour, and you get off stage, there's going to be a letdown. <laughs> it is a guarantee. And it's going to feel like depression. Right. The actual endorphins release when you're on stage during that hour, like a runner's high. It's been documented. That control that you have on stage does not exist in life for a minute. You just did it for an hour at a time. That is a drug. When Jimmy Fallon says he needed that drug to go to the next club in town, he would play five clubs in a night because he just needed more drugs. 
it is a ridiculous high. So yeah, you're gonna you're gonna go right into depression, and then the rest of it just matters, or is germane to whether or not you're a, a naturally depressed person. Sure. Uh, Jim Jeffries, who has one of the funniest moments in the movie to me when he talks about observing the basketball-spinning unicycle family at 12. Yeah, and that's all. <laughs> they were on uh, America's Got Talent or something. And his yeah. question was, that's got to be one person's passion in that family. <laughs> There's no way more than one person went, you too? I love spinning basketballs on you. I mean, that kills me. And then toward, in the third act of the movie, he's talking, yes, for 10 years I've been on and off antidepressants and I've been suicidal and not about my career, but just about life. That's the same guy who was ridiculously funny and honest about and then also raising his kid and how am i supposed to make sure he's normal because i was raised without money and now he's raised in a rich family and how do i make sure he's not a fuckwit yeah do i take him on shitty holidays like i had (laughs) but then i want the coconut in the island right he's saying and you know all of that stuff was just him talking none of that's from his act in fact i thought the basketball spinning unicycle thing was a bit and i asked him afterwards when i was in editing because i kept coming back to it because it made me laugh so hard and I called him and said is this a bit from your act because I'm not so sure I want it in the film if it, if you were passing off material as conversation yeah, of course. that's not cool and he said no and I said you sh- then it should be a bit because it's amazing and he said no I haven't done it since I kind of forgot I said it and I said well you should do it he said no it's in your movie that's good but it's a it's a phenomenal bit you know what I mean so I think the misery when you come off stage uh, is, is heightened if you have it in you already. Um, and, and if not, you, you just crave that, that power and control. Well, I think it's also an emotional crash the way that you would mm-hmm. physically crash if you just ran really hard for an hour. So like if you ran a marathon afterwards, you're, you're, you're going to be a little lifeless, you know? And so you feel you devote so much of your energy to like keeping, keeping the energy up, keeping the energy up, keeping the energy up that you're just, it's like you, you've, you've scooped all the coal that you have it, on, you know, in your reserves in that, it's biological. in that hour. It's biological. It doesn't even have to be emotional or mental. So it's interesting you said because like for me, the high of the doing stand up in front of a bunch of people is the immediately, immediately after it's done. Is when you feel high? Because it's like, thank God oh, that's over. we did it. <laughs> Yeah, wow. but you know, but the more you, you know, it's funny because it, when you first start out, five seven minutes feels like an eternity, and then fifteen minutes feels like whoa, and then someone has to do twenty or twenty five or thirty, and then you're like, wow, I can, maybe I can scrape it together. And then when you first start headlining, you're like, fuck, fifty minutes, an hour, God, how am I going to fill that? And now I feel like it goes by like that, like it's no, yeah, it, you know, so it's really trying to control the experience as it's as it's happening. But yeah, it, I I do. Uh, Someone just told me I was down. at some venue. I'm trying to remember what it was that you had just played there, and ended up doing like an hour and a half when you were scheduled to do an hour because the room was just so great. Oh, I did two hours in Madison. Yeah, I did two hours, right. and I've never done two hours on stage before. And and no, and I certainly would never go. I'm doing two hours tonight. <laughs> yeah, but if- I'm gonna need to do two hours. <laughs> I don't know what you've planned, <laughs> but I know you're only paying me for one. <laughs> yeah, it didn't feel like two hours to me, and the audience not. seemed not. into it for the time that it was there. I didn't feel like I was holding them hostage for two hours. Like it, <laughs> like it, the last 45 minutes you kept looking into the curtain pointing at your watch. Are we? <laughs> <laughs> oh, you're not going anywhere. Lock the doors. You know, but, uh, but it was fun. It was, really, it was really fun. Well, there's the drug again. And for Matt, you can't wait to get off stage. It's, well, it's just the joy of being done. Accomplishment. I like finishing things. Accomplishment. It's the, it's the real joy of just going like, that's done. 
one more one more notch on the done belt. Yeah. Oh, that's an interesting take. I think if you did stand up a lot, yeah, it would shift. Because now, because you do stand up so rarely yeah. now that it is like a feat when you're able to do it. You go, oh, I can still do that. And yeah. it might seem like a chore. Oh, it always, it always seems like a chore. It's always, everything's a chore to me. Yeah. Nothing, <laughs> nothing is not a chore. Well, we, there's no waking up in the morning. Waiting so long over. to hear those words. We got going. It's, everything's a chore. And I we've can't just arrived at the bigger issue. I can't, and the biggest, and the, like, <laughs> but for me, it's like, it's Here's your fucking documentary. You just follow him I around. I cannot slow down either because I can't stop because nope. I hate that more than doing stuff. Yes. But so you're a, you're, you're, you're a prisoner of your own drive. It's Everything's a chore. insane. Yeah. Like I should be living life. Like once I wrap up here I should go home and just be By the laying way, around I, doing I had nothing. this argument with, with Marin. Because there's very few people more miserable on a moment by moment basis, and he's and and he know, and he's made a career on it, and he's happy to celebrate it and talk about it openly. And I and I keep trying to convince him, and he won't listen. Your joy is in that. That's where you thrive. That's where you are an artist. That's where you've now got a a, a greater career because you 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 found the platform and you just keep being miserable because he keeps insisting he wants to get to a place of less and i said you'll shrivel shrivel up and die yeah. the idea of retiring for most artists sounds good on paper or a vacation looks terrific in writing yeah. but when you go to do it oh. you just lose what made you either you thought miserable mm. or technically happy well, maybe, you know, maybe I almost, you feel alive. I almost kind of wonder with some people if they almost have like, uh, you know, like mirror settings for a game controller yeah. where you flip everything like it's they don't identify they identify opposite values of things. So they go, oh, well, I, I need to be this, but I'm always this. And it's like, oh, maybe that state is actually what you think you want. You just don't recognize. I, I don't know. It, it, I, I think I think your settings really. You know, I don't. I think it's like trying to figure out if your if your settings are where you want them to be. Yeah, yeah. And, and I don't know the I don't know the answer to that because I, I think, you know, things that um, that I used to identify as like, oh, this is this is what I want. When I look back and I go, no, 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 that actually was not. That's what I thought, but that's not the way it actually was. Now I understand. Oh, everything I think I want, I know eventually I'm not going to want it. Well, like for instance, it's ridiculous. You know, I used to think, you know, when I was younger, I would think that, uh, you know, the drama in a relationship equaled passion. Like, oh, that, you know, well, you're, that's what the fucking movies told us. It's a, well, and also Alice Alicia. It's, it's almost, it's almost sort of like. Um, I, I think a better, a different analogy for comedy would be, you know, when you when you try to do something. And you're putting a lot of effort. You go, this is working. This is work. This is what you're supposed to do. Then you'll have an amazing set where you didn't do anything, where it feels like you didn't do anything. And you're like, I don't know. I didn't really do anything. Yeah. You go, yeah, yeah. You were just being. So it's the idea of, of being versus doing. And I used to think the value was in feeling the effort. But now I sort of feel like the value is in is in not feeling the effort of like you're just being you're just existing and you're not trying to force a result you're just you're just yourself. I do that. I, I just exist constantly. But it's the five. <laughs> it's it's the it's always the lead up to whatever it is I'm going to do. Once I go to do the thing I'm doing, I just exist in the thing. I, to me, but whenever, for me, it's always the preamble to the fucking thing I have. I to think do. Matt. Whenever whenever you have to go do anything, whether it's Go to work. Go uh, on vacation. Even. Go on vacation. Take a bike ride. Do anything. 
the second you decide, like, all right, I'm going to do this, I imagine the theme to Dirty Jobs plays in your head. <laughs> <laughs> all right. Well, it's a dirty job on someone's <laughs> <laughs> it's, I, 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 Ambition it's, ultimately is the fuel, you know? Right. Whether it's the ambition to accomplish something uh, that you set out your mind to do or to achieve a part of your career that you've not been allowed to attempt – the ambition is ultimately the thing that keeps driving us. And then along the way, we find out what we actually enjoy and don't enjoy. But the train just keep got a moving. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, I said yes to directing this movie. I read the script, and it's based on a, a high concept, but it actually happened. This guy, Ken Baker, wrote a book about it. When he was 30, they found a brain tumor benign, and they removed it. And, but it was pressing against his pituitary gland, and he went through puberty at age 30. Oh, my God. Exactly. God. Now, that's a high concept. You could go into a studio and pitch, yep. but it actually happened to this fucking guy. And so the second act, when it happens, is hilarious and hijinks and arch and great, but that first act just needed to be way crazy grounded in reality as we get to know this guy and care about him and his friends. And it wasn't. So when I was asked to, I went in and read the script and and went in to meet with the people about directing it, I just said, fuck it. I'm going to tell them what's wrong with their movie. Uh, And and there was something about ambition not being in the way or fueling it or pulling me into this job. Oh, my God, I get to direct a comedy. Someone even heard buzz from the documentary and there's interest. So the ambition train said, go fucking take that meeting and get this job. You get to direct somebody else's comedy, you stupid son of a bitch. Say yes, 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 yes until you're on the set. And I went in and said, here's what's wrong. Um, I don't care about these two lead characters because all of their friends are dickheads. What is the deal now with everyone's friends being assholes, douches, and dickheads? <laughs> and I don't, you know, make me care about these fucking people. Make them real and make them talk the way that 28-year-olds talk. Great. Yeah. But why is this guy the douche? Why does he have, Why not just make him successful and handsome? People think he's a douche because they're envious or whatever, but he's not actually a douche. He's just a successful, handsome guy. So anyways, I went in there and told them everything was wrong, and unfortunately they said, great. Uh, <laughs> now go do that. And so ultimately, but there, there was one of the very few things, uh, moments where I got off the ambition train and just said, I'm actually going to have an artistic take and a point of view on this, and let's see what happens. Yeah, well, it's, I think it's just about adjusting your goals as opposed to, you know, your goal in that moment was to make something that you cared about, which is, which can still have the same result as the, um, was the ambition based goals or better, but they're, I think they're a little more rewarding than just like, I'll be rich and famous, you yeah. know, like that's, or I just get to do this again. Cause yeah. that was the ambition train and yeah. the first thought, Oh, it was a knee jerk instinct. And it also, I get to do this again. It also creates fear because you know, you're afraid of, afraid of losing this. I'm afraid of not getting that. I'm afraid of, you know, and, uh, staying on the train and that stuff gets, but you got to work. Gets in the fear way. leads to anger. Anger leads to hate. Hate leads to suffering. And then you have a movie. Suffering leads to the dark side. Yep. And then <laughs> you get a $75 billion worth of movies. <laughs> uh, guys, I'm still worried about me. Yeah. What? I really thought about it. Do you want to talk about it? Or is I it really sure? thought about it. It's everything's a chore. This is all a chore. <laughs> what would not bullshit. be a chore for you? I don't know. That's the thing. Go into a baseball game. Still a chore. Really? I got to park. Where am I going to park? Yeah, Everything's but... a fucking issue. Now, now I... let me ask you a question. Yep. You, the, your fiance yep. is 
one of the coolest fucking people in the world. Yeah, she's fantastic. So how that. does she handle that? She's very good at, at everything. She's good at... No, how does she how handle she, you? Yeah. Oh. How is she with the, oh, I don't know. the king of chore? That's a great, great question. Because <laughs> are you constantly feeling comfortable enough around her to complain about everything being oh, a yeah. chore? Oh, yeah. Drives well, her crazy. A, that, that drives her crazy. Does it? Yeah. Interesting. Don't create a self-fulfilling prophecy where you were trying to drive her away so that you can go, look what happened. Oh, no. I don't have that. Okay, good. That well, then at have. least you don't have that. Because Dory's fucking rad. I, you I, think, here's the thing. Here's the problem with me. Yeah. I think everything's a chore, but I also know everything's going to work out fine for me. <laughs> it doesn't matter what's happening. I'm like, you know that? Ultimately, it's going to be fine. You know that. Yeah. In your heart. I've dumb lucked my way into everything. So I've this, is a, but this is a. But this is a. Uh, this is a habit, though. This is a pattern. So maybe you don't actually feel like everything's a chore. It's just a. It's just an auto. It's just an uh, like, default. Yeah, guys, I'm like, I am so annoyed with the fact that I have to like fly to Hawaii. Like to take vacation? Like, who am I? What is this? But by the way, well, and then just... I'm like, you have to fly to a different island. You can't drive. That's yeah. just uh, this is exactly that's why just you being a wiener. Yeah, I don't it, this is why it. the rest of the world hates us. Yeah, <laughs> first of all, yeah, but but also, um, look, we're we're definitely one of the things I was hoping to accomplish in the movie was getting people to talk about the struggle of. Uh, choosing a path, in this case, being funny, Mm -hmm. right? And then uh, learning along the way what you do and don't like about it, ultimately. And so you're either complaining or you're you're sharing because someone asked. So maybe less complaining, but share when someone asks. Mm, Yeah. Sounds no fun. (laughs) (laughs) I feel like we need to focus on me for a little while here, guys. (laughs) Because yeah. the truth is, it's okay that fucking things piss you off and they annoy the piss out of you. I think that's part of the human condition also. Yeah. And, and if you have someone in your life who cares about you, they want to help you, but also they're going to – maybe she's going to be you, – because you, you said yeah. when, when I say something's a chore, it, it bugs the piss out of her. Maybe um, uh, the, the future of this relationship is uh, – you less you you finding a place to oh she knows this annoys me you know what I mean oh no I have that she already. knows this believe annoys me, me I know I know I, yeah. I've 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 corrected the ship it's fine it's I think but there's been an evolution right at least yeah, you're course. aware of it of course I don't want to bum everybody out with my annoying complaining about things people shouldn't be complaining about yeah. <laughs> it's just like, oh that's good yeah uh, but it it is interesting that there is, I mean it, that you dance around this a little bit. In the documentary, mm-hmm. that you know, there's a there's such a fine line between uh, misery and like real mental health issues. Yeah, sure, where you know where Dana Gould is talking about, I melted down on stage and I had to leave the club. Or Bamford said, I I was in a psych ward. Sure, you know, and 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 hearing about you know Lenny Bruce losing his fucking mind at a certain point. Yeah, is is really really that fine line between. You know, hilarious, miserable clown, and like, oh no, there's actually this person genuinely needs help. Yeah, and I think you'll find that in every profession. um, In terms of some are are dealing with are on antidepressants. You know, uh, so that's another reason why I wanted to show the range of experiences and not just focus on on the yeah chemically imbalanced. Well, I love what Penn Jillette said about. 
Everyone has these problems. So it's just him. that it's called show business, so you're showing people <laughs> what your problems are. <laughs> Everyone, these are human, you know. Yeah. But I do feel like performers are particularly sensitive and, and, and particularly prone. But why? That's one of the things I wanted to try. I think it's part of the package. Yes. I think the thing... That it, the thing that attracts you to it is part of the, yeah. the whatever the broken thing is. It's, yeah. it's all it's all part of it because it's just too much of a coincidence. Yes. it's too much of a coincidence that that many people would be like, yeah, you know, I'm uh, I'm anxious, depressed, socially awkward. I, I mean, it's like there if if you really if you took a sociologist in and had them break down everyone's profile, I think you would see so many bizarre similarities and probably things that you wouldn't even like. You wouldn't even think like, oh, you know, a large number of them drink pineapple juice. Like, I bet you would find weird similarities across the board, like well, a Freakonomics sort of a yeah, thing. Yeah, I think we're, a lot of them are shown an opportunity to express their misery, whether it's painting, songwriting, or, or performing. You're shown a window. You see in television or, or whatever the media is, someone expressing pain. And you gra- and you are gravitationally pulled, if that's a thing, uh, to that opportunity to express. So to say people are pre, you know, uh, almost predestined to be in the arts, the performing arts, who suffer from misery and depression. I think they see it as an outlet. I think they see, like Maria Bamford talks about being in a psych ward. She really. T- also talks about the the ability, the opportunity to go on stage and talk about it for the first to time. own it, to own it, and 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 then, as she says in the film, freed her to talk about it in her own life more freely because she first talked about it with strangers. Yeah, right. And she, I love how she says the first time you do it, you have a shaky voice, you know, and then by the tenth time, she's saying you're in a psych ward, you know, as you do. Yeah, uh, and that's just the evolution of comfort. So I think there's a gravitational pull towards. The outlet that the performing arts represents to people who are miserable. So where Matt used to complain about being in a studio apartment and having no life, show business gave him the opportunity <laughs> to complain about going to Hawaii. <sighs> right. My gardeners yeah. come early. It's ridiculous. <laughs> no, I mean. I'm really sick of hearing Matt complain about all the really great stuff that happens in the market. Was that the social media? That's just me in the cast of commenting. That's just you in the Reddit <laughs> thread already. That's, me there. I'm, that's where my head is. No, but, uh, but I, I do think that it's also, you know, you, you, uh, people who are more artistically inclined, more creative people, are, I think, automatically more sensitive because you have to be sort of a receptacle to the world to then re express those things in, a, in an articulate and a succinct way. That requires a certain personality type, and I think you are you condition yourself to be more sensitive as you go along because you are you go in search of the misery and what's fucked up about this and what am I like you the machine like powers itself it's a self sustaining if we could figure out how to if we could figure out how to power the earth off of a comedian energy. ego like I'm you, sorry you mean earth right earth okay yeah uh, I think if, look if this movie were about clinical depression and suicide. Then we would have talked to a lot of uh, civilians, so-called non-professionals, about their inability to find a venue to to uh, complain, mm. a venue to have the conversation, uh, uh, stifled by an inability to speak about it. Right. Um, so the the performers who had clinical depression or chemical imbalance in their existence prior 
just found an outlet to express and to talk and to get better that, that way. And I think the majority of people who suffer from chemical imbalance and clinical depression do not. Mm -hmm. uh, and that might be the thing that stands between them and feeling better on occasion is just being able to talk about it. Well, that's interesting. You know, when you say, you know, to hear say, Jimmy say that um, Fallon say that it's like a drug. I always hear people compare it to crack, you know, but maybe it's actually more like um, uh, Ritalin or, so, you know, like maybe maybe it's more like a medical drug. And it's this type of personality is creating that chemical release in their brain to calm down like they you're self-medicating with performing no, so no. that it's so that it's not like a street drug it's more like uh you know a prescribed drug and that's that's how we deal with that and actual endorphins released as i said yes when you're on stage yes and that so that drug is technically a, a calming mm -hmm. comforting wonderful cashmere sweater yep um so the idea that you could go back up there and feel that way again, other than Matt, who just can't wait for it to be over. But I feel that way as soon as it's done. As soon as it's done, you put on that sweater. <laughs> you put on that cashmere and you go home. Zip it up. Yeah, baby. Um, so, 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 yeah. So, I look, um, if you're a comedy fan, if you, if you love um, – and that's one of the reasons I included filmmakers also and actors who I knew. It's, I, I, people should know it's, the film is not a bummer. Like it's, a, it's really fascinating it. and funny and interesting. It's not like, my life's so sad. I'm a comic. Like it's really – I cut it to be a comedy. Yeah. That was the other choice I made in editing, to be honest with you. And people said, Kevin, why isn't your opinion uh, – why aren't we hearing from you? you know? And I say, the movie's my opinion. I had 70 hours to choose from, and I chose every one of these sentences very fucking carefully and for 10 months before these 94 minutes of sentences got put together. So the film is my opinion. And quite frankly, I had to decide early on, is this going to be a comedy with insight and drama in occasion, or is this going to be a drama with comedic relief? And I went comedy. I cut it to be funny. Oh, yeah. fuck yeah. And the joy for me was funny people can't help but be funny when they're talking about misery. And just to let people know, getting back to your, your, one of your first comments about your enjoyment of watching it with family, knowing that in the film you talk about masturbating in a church. First of all, <laughs> there was a – and this hasn't come out in the press interviews at all. There, among all the questions, one of them was – uh, what's the fourth thing about you you'd rather people not know? And the reason it was the fourth, if it's not obvious, is that I wanted people to, A, find it kind of funny as a topic, and B, I didn't want to, I, I hate being asked, what is your favorite this? What mm -hmm. is the one thing? But, you know, forget the apex. Right. And if it's not, because there's, there's nothing but pressure on what is the one thing. What is your favorite movie? Fuck you is my favorite movie. So... Uh, the fourth thing that you'd rather people not know about you. Now you're not only moving down the list, but you're also finding something off the beaten track. Oh, sure. Quite frankly. It, you know, it isn't heinous necessarily. It's just so they, most of them are comical. That's why Matt Walsh in the film says, I made a girl cry in college. And then a really long pause. And then he says, I feel bad. <laughs> you know? It's just kind of beautiful. So you don't hear that question, nor is it a title card in a chapter. What is the fourth thing no one... You would rather no one know about you, but it provided uh, these sort of comedic relief valves that were personal, 
right? Yeah. They didn't have to do with putting in your 10,000 hours or your influences or, um, you know, losing your amateur stat. They just had to do with something along the journey that, to me, made... So, comedic uh, uh, opportunities were found. And and I really was... (laughs) (laughs) You still can't believe you said it. (laughs) Well, you know, I, I remember very specifically... One of the reasons I told that story, and I don't really care, you know, it's fine. It, but well, you told it to a camera, so clearly you don't care. Yeah, I mean, I care and I don't care at the same time, but I was also, I feel like I had just had a conversation with Mike Birbiglia, who was, was talking about, like, yeah, I really go to this place where I'm not comfortable, and that's where I write from. And I was like, yeah, that's a really great, because that's human, like, where you're uncomfortable is human. That's Discomfort is a very universal, shared experience thing. And, uh, of course, there's a fine line between what is shared discomfort and one of the people are like ooh but it really was for me you know i mean I, I was a teenager i went to catholic school i was you know had typical teenager hormones but at the same time it really was a spiritual experiment where i was like i want to know am i allowed to do this or not is something terrible going to happen it was genuinely a, a a religious sociological experiment and aren't you a little grateful that i forced you to also share that it happened in the bathroom and not where people's imagination had you doing this <laughs> Seriously, because if you don't clarify that, when you just say I masturbate in a church, I promise you 92 out of 100 people see you on the fucking altar. Well, I did slaughter some animals in the bathroom, and I used their blood as lube. But other than that, it was a completely normal teenage experience. Try it out too quick, buddy. I know. That's why I said animals, plural. Uh, But, you know, I think a lot of the... It made you uncomfortable to tell it, and that's why you... It did make me uncomfortable to tell it, but I'm not sorry that I did, because it's, you know, everyone does... It was funny. Up stuff. Yeah, it was funny. And you know, like I've been, I've been sort of struggling with this one bit. Like once I get into the bit, it's fine. All the jokes work throughout the bit. But it's about how I, when I was young, I had sex with a blow up doll. Sure. And whenever I say it on stage, not one time has anyone ever laughed. They're always just like, Ugh. like it's Uh-oh. one step too far for them. Yeah. And I've been trying to be okay. Like, okay, this is a piece that's going to start out weird for you, uncomfortable, but just. Go, but just follow me, and then it'll be okay. And it always ends up, it always ends up fine. Sure. But I think to your earlier point, a comic on stage for an hour is, you, you know, so much of us live in our in just this internal life, yep. where we've constructed this picture of the world that's very us centric. Sure. And people did that because of something we did, or this, and then it gets very, yeah. you know, and so being on stage is getting out of that for an hour. And then when you go back, when you're done with your show, you're back in your own head, and that's a depressing place. <laughs> there you go. Unless you're Matt Myra. Unless you're Matt Myra. That's oh, wonderful in here. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, because when you're in your own thoughts, you love listening to the complaints. Oh, <laughs> me, I agree. <laughs> you're fine. You are so <laughs> right, me. <laughs> you're right. That is far to drive in L.A., me. <laughs> I wouldn't live in the valley either. <laughs> Says Matt, you know, this guy, guy's lost like a hundred and some pounds. Right. Works out. 200. 200 pounds. Got a great almost wife. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Couple mm-hmm. great jobs. Yep. Yeah. You know, like, is it, think things, things are, are all right. But I had to buy the Volvo in Torrance. So when I need to get it fixed, I got to drive to fucking Torrance. I know, man. No, you it don't. Is. Yes, it, I got to go to that dealership. They have a five-year thing. You got whatever, whatever bullshit. I take it back. Your it life is shit. <laughs> Guys, are you telling me that I could do this at any Volvo dealership? <laughs> yes, I am. I thought that was part of the deal. <laughs> <laughs> I did not know that. 
<laughs> there goes Matt. <laughs> and if not, if not, if not, for thirty-seven dollars, you can get Task Rabbit to drive it. Yes. Yes. Not even a full-time assistant. There's this? an app on your phone called Task Rabbit, and they will actually drive your car and get it fixed and drive it back to you for about thirty-seven dollars. And I'm just picking that number arbitrarily, wow. but it ain't much more. How you feel now? Better. <laughs> I'm here to cure. Guys, I can't wait to do the show on Friday at the <laughs> Wilbur Theater. I'll see you there. Oh, yeah. You'll be at the Wilbur. Um, but, uh, and if not, TaskRabbit should be a sponsor. It's, <laughs> they should. <laughs> Clearly. Uh, or you, or you could, uh, you could. Get By the way, Matt, there's also 48 other apps. Or you could get Just Matt Myra's app, Chore Donkey, where you can make everything feel like a chore. <laughs> It's just a picture of Eeyore. I don't uh, feel everything's a chore. (laughs) That's your book. Really is. There you go. That's your special. That's your book. Are you going to do another special at any point? I don't know. I don't know. I. I. It's so daunting to me to to uh, put together a new eighty minutes from which I can call an hour of uh, what I would be thrilled with. To be honest with you. Um. I. I. I, I, Yeah. It's daunting. It's daunting. I have. Spent my life, you know, since age 10 doing stand-up comedy. So now at this point, I have more respect and reverence for n- not being able to say, ah, fuck it, and and uh, taking a year off to put an act together, which yeah. is what I think for me it would probably take. Um, and I've never been able to use writers, so that's not a possibility. Um, but when I was uh, at the Tribeca Film Festival just this last week and doing all the press and stuff... Um, Artie Lang came to one of the screenings at IFC Center and just happened to run into him out front. And I said, oh, geez, I wish we had known each other prior. You would have been on the poster also, uh, given your own uh, sharing. Um, And then he was doing a set at the Comedy Cellar, which is half a block away. And, you know, my stand-up experience was San Francisco. It wasn't New York. So when I finally got to New York, someone said, go to catch Catch a Rising Star, and that's where I worked out. And then Caroline's on Broadway became the place I would actually work. And I missed the whole Comedy Cellar experience. Mm-hmm. And when I went there after the IFC screening of the film and to see Artie Lang do a set, it was the first time I walked into the Comedy Cellar. Oh. So how ridiculous is that wow. at this point in my life? And then uh, SD walked me from the little club around the corner to the bigger room. I got both experiences. And um, man, I felt like uh, instantly booking a 40-city tour just from that yeah. 19 minutes. Yeah. So it is forever in, in you know, earlier today doing an interview. So now that you're acting and directing and blah, 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 what is your oh, the favorite question? Mm-hmm. And, it, and I just involuntarily came out of me. Being on stage, taking the audience for a ride of your choosing will always be the greatest high I will know. I mean, the editing of this film was an amazing education, and being in that vacuum, I felt more alive than I had in years. Um, being able to show someone the assemblage of that time, right? But still, yep, being on stage and just, you know, it's the ultimate uh, creative experience by far. What's the fourth weirdest place you've ever masturbated? Fourth? Um in my trailer on the set at Warner Brothers while shooting the TV show Mom. <laughs> That's not weird. We can knock on every trailer at Warner Brothers. Someone's jerking off in it. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Oh, every trailer. You do not want to go into those trailers with a blacklight. <laughs> yeah. No. 
No. Well, <laughs> maybe because I was shooting a show called Mom. <laughs> so. <laughs> Maybe that's, Maybe that's where you want to explore some stuff. <laughs> Maybe that's. A, I don't know. Every time I was in that trailer, I just had to. I saw my name and the word mom, and yeah. then I just had to. Yeah, it didn't hurt that I had a photo of my mom over the toilet. So, <laughs> so really, they didn't just kill you off the show. <laughs> they uh, stopped me from masturbating in the trailer. <laughs> they were on to me, and I didn't realize until just now. Yeah. Well, Kevin Pollack, uh, I will see you on At Midnight soon because you're going to go. You're going to be on the show. Today. Yeah. Yeah, first time, very excited. With um, Tom, Rhodes, Tom Rhodes and Eddie Izzard. Intimidated so beyond it's gonna belief. Be a, it's going to be a good, it's a heavy hitter show. I am, uh, I need help, so. You'll be fine. And then um, I. And thanks for downloading the movie, Chris. Yes, of course. I was wow. very happy to. I was very happy to. On the and iTunes, the Amazon, uh, Video On Demand. Misery Loves Comedy. Great. It's, it's, yeah, it's, you run out of Bosch, you can go ahead and uh, watch this movie. <laughs> and it flies by, too, because it you're constantly seeing people that you love and it it did not feel like 94 minutes the pace is something i really had to focus on yeah yeah well uh thanks man well done and i hope you good to see you again not in my dining room i know Ah. well i hope you stay happy but maintain just enough misery to, to stay funny thank you uh enjoy your burrito everyone For more than two centuries, the White House has been the stage for some of the most dramatic scenes in American history. Inspired by the hit podcast American History Tellers, Wondery and William Morrow present the new book, The Hidden History of the White House. Each chapter will bring you inside the fierce power struggles, the world-altering decisions, and shocking scandals that have shaped our nation. You'll be there when the very foundations of the White House are laid in 1792, and you'll watch as the British burn it down in 1814. Then you'll hear the intimate conversations between FDR and Winston Churchill as they make plans to defeat Nazi forces in 1941. And you'll be in the Situation Room when President Barack Obama approves the raid to bring down the most infamous terrorist in American history. Pre-order The Hidden History of the White House now in hardcover or digital editions wherever you get your books.